0: Hey, Jay, I'm confused.
1: Well, I mean, X-Men.
0: Okay, okay, fair point, fair point. But seriously, do you know what's up with the agent? Agent of what? Shield? Hate? Aim? Uh, No, the agent.
1: I'm running out of acronyms
0: here. The agent, the definite article.
1: Okay, which one?
0: There's more than one.
1: There's only one identity? But there have been multiple people under the mask, sort of.
0: Oh, like Eric the Red?
1: You know, actually, yeah, almost exactly like Eric the Red.
0: Oh, man, I don't know if there's room for two bondage Vikings in the Marvel Universe.
1: Oh, the agent isn't a bondage Viking, but he does start out as a disguise for a friendly character, even if the circumstances are somewhat different.
0: Well, I know he's actually Ricochet Rita in Mojo Mayhem.
1: Right. Now, again, the context is different with Eric the Red. Rita is trapped in the agent identity. She didn't pick it on purpose. But there is that parallel, and also like Eric the Red, the agent gets established later as his own entity.
0: Does he still work for Mojo? Yep. Tracking down errant SKPs from the Mojoverse. Or recruiting new players. So I was thinking about that. It seems weird to me that Mojo pretty much recruits from the X-Men. Has he ever ventured into other quadrants of the Marvel Universe?
1: Oh, totally. In fact, the agent briefly managed to sign Simon Williams.
0: Wonder Man, How did that go?
1: Uh, Mojo ended up firing him.
0: Good lord. What's too screwed up and over the top for Mojo? Uh,
1: he messed up Shakespeare in a screen test. What?! I'm J. Rachel Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's
0: about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 123 of J. and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: Okay, so here we are in the studio to talk about Excalibur, but first... Rose City Comic
1: Con is coming up. It is September 10th to 11th, and we are going to be there.
0: We are indeed. This is our uh, second Rose City as the podcast, right?
1: That's right. And once again, we are going to be tabling all weekend. We'll be at booth 815 with Al Ewing... I love that guy. He is so awesome. I am really, really excited about getting to spend the weekend with him.
0: I could listen to that British accent for a very long time. I went to karaoke with him once and he did like this War of the Worlds musical that I didn't even know existed, but is apparently a really big thing in England. And it was truly epic. I wish all of you had been there. Every single listener.
1: That room would have been really crowded.
0: It would have been cozy, it's true, but we're we all would
1: probably have violated a lot of fire codes. Eh,
0: fire codes. When did fire ever hurt anybody?
1: Speaking of fire code violations, no, we're not going to violate any fire codes, but we are going to do another live episode. It's going to be Saturday at noon for those of you who are only going to be at the show one day, and for those of you who aren't going to be at the show but are in Portland or are going to be at the show and are looking for something to do after hours, we are once again going to be headed to the steep and thorny way to heaven for an after hours party on Saturday. We will have, you know, the balloons and the wall and custom X-Men drinks and all of that fun. That'll again be all ages and no badge required.
0: Yeah, and uh, last year when we did this, it was a huge amount of fun. It was awesome getting to meet so many of you and just talk about ridiculous X-Men nonsense and non-X-Men stuff, which apparently that's a thing as well. It was good times. You want to cosplay for the party this year? I kind of feel like we should. I mean, people have cosplayed as us, which means we're characters, which we already knew because of X-Men 92, so we could just cosplay as ourselves by dressing as ourselves. I
1: actually don't have time to put together X-Men 92 Us costumes, but I could make other X-Men costumes. I mean,
0: it's an idea. We'll see how time plays out. Like,
1: that's some involved tailoring.
0: It's true. Okay, speaking not really at all of involved tailoring, so I mentioned we're talking about Excalibur. Now, if you're listening to these episodes in order, you will probably recall that we did that really recently. But last episode, we talked about all the X-Men, X-Factor, New Mutants annual stuff from 89, So now we're doing the equivalent for Excalibur.
1: Now, Excalibur doesn't technically have annuals, does it?
0: Yeah, not exactly. So both Excalibur and Wolverine, as the month to month issues at this point, were this fancy, prestige format. They were on nicer paper, there weren't ads, there were pictures on the back, that sort of thing. And of course, they cost more. And so the annual equivalents for those comics were similarly kind of fancy. They were bound more nicely, there weren't ads in them either, and they weren't really numbered the same way that X-Men New Mutants and X-Factor were.
1: Well, and they weren't called annuals, right?
0: Right, they were just, you know, special editions of various sorts. I'm not really sure what the official name was. But yeah, so in 1989, we had Excalibur Mojo Mayhem, which we're going to be talking about this episode. We also had Wolverine the Jungle Adventure. I mean, technically it's dated 1990, but I believe it came out in 89. Which is a really bizarre story that Mike Mignola illustrated and Walter Simonson wrote. And there was this weird stuff with Apocalypse and Adamantium. And it actually sounds a little bit more interesting than it is. We may cover it at some point, or we might just bring up the relevant story stuff when we get to the Weapon X story. We'll see how it goes. I
1: mean, that sounds really interesting. So if it only sounds a little bit more interesting than it is, there's still room for a pretty high quality. Okay,
0: well, maybe we'll tackle it at some point.
1: First, though, today we're going to talk about a Marvel Comics Presents story.
0: So Marvel Comics Presents, to recap, was an anthology series that was coming out all through the 80s and uh, I believe 90s as well. Eventually it went all Wolverine all the time because people couldn't get enough Wolverine. But at this point, it was doing lots of different focal stories. So there was that one with Havoc and the living Pharaoh's daughter that we talked about. There's one with Cyclops and a proto-legacy virus. There's one written by Anasenti about Colossus that I really want to cover sometime.
1: And we've been seeing more and more names pop up in these books that became kind of, at least within the comics community, household names in the 90s. Here is where we're going to see another one. This story is drawn by, well, it's drawn either by... Eric Larson, creator of Savage Dragon Artist on Amazing Spider-Man, with his name sporadically misspelled, or two different people named Eric Larson with remarkably similar art styles and subtly differently spelled names.
0: I'm going to go for that second theory. I really like the idea of two Eric Larson's with this, like, bitter rivalry. Alternately, I really like the idea of them being, like, Red Double Dragon Guy and Blue Double Dragon Guy. So they team up. Yeah, you know, player one, player two. Like, they sort of alternate issues writing the story.
1: I like this idea.
0: But this story is from uh, Marvel Comics Presents number 31 through 38. It's called Having a Wild Weekend. And I think we're just going to go through it pretty quickly because while it's fun, it's very, very fluffy. It's mainly an excuse for the writer Michael Higgins to write and Eric Larson and Eric Larson to draw a whole lot of pop culture references.
1: Whole lot of pop culture references. And I got to say, that's what the bulk of this story is. There isn't really a narrative structure to it. And it's fun, but it kind of feels like a mashup t-shirt spread out into a six-part story.
0: (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Um, Although I think it was actually eight. That's even worse. So we start with this giant splash page of Excalibur freaking out because Kitty is screaming about her computer doing something really bizarre.
1: We should note this takes place either before or after the cross-time caper, but we're not
0: sure which. Yeah, there's some evidence to either being the case, like Megan's wearing her pre-cross-time caper costume, but Captain Britain's wearing his post-cross-time caper costume. Widget is more of a member of the team like he was post-cross-time caper. I don't know. It's weird.
1: We are baffled. But that's okay, because honestly, there is nothing in here that is ever going to connect insensible ways to continuity.
0: Speaking of things that aren't quite in line with continuity, the personalities of the characters, they seem a little exaggerated. Like, Captain Britain, he can totally be a dick sometimes, but he's really a dick here. Like, he's willing to discount Kitty's worry without even knowing what it is. Just saying she's got an overactive imagination before he even sees what she's freaking out about.
1: I am also deeply uncomfortable with the way that Larson draws Kitty.
0: She does look a little more developed than perhaps is uh, accurate to the character.
1: I've said this before with regards to other characters, but yeah, Kitty's pretty young. We try not to sexualize her.
0: It's true. But, you know, it certainly could and will be worse at different times, in uh, the 90s especially.
1: Man, that really is the community reference that keeps on giving.
0: I think my favorite community reference that keeps on giving is probably just a line, Is this a bit?
1: Well, that is my favorite, like, Twitter burn.
0: Right, yeah, because it's just so quickly, concisely derisive. I'm not a derisive kind of guy, but...
1: Right, but we don't really use that on the podcast because we're generally fairly aware whether or not it's a bit.
0: And we're not dicks to each other, usually. I mean,
1: we're kind of dicks to each other in the show, but we're like pre-negotiated dicks to each other.
0: Huh. Pre-negotiated dicks. Is that a punk band? Like a punk band that all have PhDs?
1: This is the art of play fighting in public. This is something that Chris and I used to do on Twitter because we're both kind of public curmudgeons.
0: It's true. You are. And
1: so we'd be curmudgeonly at each other, but like we'd have very specific. You don't go here. You don't go there. These are the bounds of this fight with the understanding that it's taking place in front of a large audience and there are directions we don't want to invite. And we're also very good friends.
0: That makes some sense. You know, valid targets are the mask or the vest or the arms, but not like, you know, the back or the groin.
1: Can I actually veer very slightly here? Because that's something that I think is really easy to forget when you're doing something public like this or on social media. That you hear the way people riff off each other or see that and sort of assume that that's just the way you talk to them and forget that they have pre-existing relationships. Yeah, like people will be really mean to Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey because they're really mean to each other on Twitter. But like they've been friends for a million years.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, uh, at a certain level of a relationship, you earn the right to call somebody like a horrible cockweasel or whatever.
1: Absolutely. But that is something that you have to earn. And that's something that you generally only do with informed consent. So, yeah.
0: Earning in the Cockweasel. That's more of like a tribute band to the band Cockweasel, who is also a band, I suppose. We're really
1: earning the M rating on this one.
0: It's an E rating, technically. E for explicit, as opposed to E for everyone. That could be confusing for some people. I think it can be both. It can totally be both.
1: Swears are for everyone.
0: Explicitly everyone. Yeah. That's just a romantic comedy right there, explicitly everyone.
1: I do kind of feel that way, though. I realize that there are reasons that we don't teach kids those words early, but I think, honestly... I don't know. I'd play our podcast for a kid. I'd talk to the kids' parents first, but, like, Mm -hmm. there are kids who listen to our show and seem reasonably well-adjusted.
0: Yeah, as far as I know, there haven't been, you know, much in the way of murders or arson or anything because of our show.
1: Don't take parenting advice from us. We're terrible. Yes, also,
0: don't murder or commit arson. If you were going to do that, don't do that.
1: Or at least don't do it in ways that can be tracked back to us as an influence. (laughs)
0: Hey, wait. (laughs) So anyway, before we get ourselves in actual trouble here... We were talking about Excalibur, weren't we?
1: Specifically talking about the Marvel Comics Presents story. I believe that where we were narratively, a very, very thinly veiled set of obvious Looney Tunes parodies pop out of the TV to start a fight.
0: Right, yeah. So we have, like, these superhero versions of Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Roadrunner, Foghorn Leghorn, Daffy Duck, and Yosemite Sam, complete with their own, like, physical, in-reality 3D logo.
1: You know, I feel like we should just be calling these guys by their character names, because they've each got... Very slight parody names. Like, I think Foghorn Leghorn is what? Rooster Cockburn?
0: Rooster Cockburn, yeah. So, we have a True Grit parody in the middle of our Looney Tunes parody.
1: That's pretty in keeping with Looney Tunes.
0: I guess it kind of is, yeah. That was always pop culture y.
1: Like, that tends to have a lot of deep cuts.
0: And so, of course, immediately these Looney Tunes characters, who are just the Loonies, attack Excalibur and there's a big fight. And as usual, everyone pairs off.
1: And they are. All and immediately defeated.
0: Yeah, even Phoenix is defeated because apparently the fact that she's a telepath lets Rooster Cockburn get into her head and, like, sort of overwhelm her telepathically. You know, just like in True Grit when Rooster Cockburn did that. You remember that scene?
1: You and I remember True Grit very differently.
0: Well, I mean, there was the original and the Coen Brothers version. Maybe we saw different versions.
1: And we get a cut to this story's not actually very mysterious. The story tries to make him mysterious, but he's really obviously arcade from the start villain.
0: Yeah, like everyone keeps saying, oh, that Joker and whatever Joker did this and like the way they show Arcade in Crossmore Prison, you just see like a big shining smile in the darkness and the and a uh, white glove and some purple sleeves It's one of those things where I really appreciate how consistent they are about trying to make this reference, even though it's immediately clear that this would be impossible in a Marvel comic.
1: And as we're going to see, they're going to get sent to a control room where they're tossed down different shoots into different fantasy situations that are pop culture riffs and with robots. And it's like, yeah, this is clearly an arcade story. Like, there are no bones about it. They just keep insisting that it's not.
0: And so, as usual, uh, in a murder world story, everyone gets separated and thrown into their own weird little murder fest scenario.
1: Although, this time, instead of being jammed into clear pinballs, they're stuck in giant carrots. Because, sure.
0: Well, yeah, because the Bugs Bunny analog in the Loonies has giant carrots. As one would expect, with him being a rabbit. Okay. Evil rabbit superhero with giant carrots it's a little strange but you know it's best not to think too hard about it so yes everyone is thrown into their own worlds now kitty gets to fight a giant sylvester the cat who turns out to be a robot and she phases through and knocks him out that way so that means that she's free for pretty much this entire story and just starts randomly phasing into parts of this murder world trying to free her comrades and I love that it's not so much like let me reprogram it it's let me just hit things with a hammer and maybe it'll make life better
1: yeah she's pushing random buttons and hoping that they'll do something which kind of implies that a lot of what happens subsequently is her fault although they never really revisit it because the story has no coherent causality of any kind to the point that sometimes there's just an explosion and then things are fixed.
0: Well, OK, to be fair, she did reprogram Murder World once and it's implied that what she's doing here is somehow improving things. And there's some no. stuff at the end. That no, clearly she's is. saying
1: specifically that she's just pushing random buttons. Speaking of which. I don't know about you, but I cannot see Looney Tunes show up in superhero comics without going straight to that one Animal Man story.
0: Oh, man. The The Gospel of Wiley Coyote, was it?
1: That's not the title. That's what I always think it's called. But yeah, that one.
0: That's a really good story. It's
1: a really, really fucking disturbing and amazing issue.
0: Yeah, Grant Morrison's pretty great. But anyway, yeah. So while Kitty's doing this, then we have Captain Britain waking up in a sea of alcohol and flying to a nearby island that's covered in empty bottles where he's promptly attacked by versions of himself in his old costumes, including the one he was still wearing at this point because chronology is weird, and ends up then meeting the Beverly Hillbillies and then going to this Mayberry analog called Blueberry, like from Andy Griffith, and then to the bar from Cheers, and then to Oz. Like, the pop culture references here, they just keep coming, like, Fast and Furious. they're just TV.
1: No, Uh, there are no Fast and Furious references. That franchise did not exist at
0: this time. Boo! I mean, okay, that was actually a pretty great non-reference. I approve. And then, you know, we have Megan and actually her being a housewife here in the scenario that she wakes up and kind of reminded me of the one where Boom Boom was married to Captain Britain in that annual we talked about last episode.
1: Yeah, she's a housewife who's sort of fighting against the appliances in her house. And then it turns out she's in the Munsters house, which is also kind of the Adams family house.
0: And it's a little weird that she doesn't mention those as shows because Megan is obsessed with television. And in fact, it even comes up later that she knows almost everything on TV.
1: Yeah, but she doesn't for some reason recognize these. A dragon appears and turns her into a dragon, at which point she says, fuck this, sets everyone on fire, busts through a wall, and meets up with Kitty.
0: I actually do like this part, that she turns into a dragon just by virtue of being near a dragon, just like she turned into a pig by virtue of fighting the Porky Pig analog earlier.
1: Oh yeah, that was a thing.
0: Yeah, so like, you know, there's a little bit of character work here, that's cool. Now, Nightcrawler, he wakes up in a sideshow cage, like at a circus... But then when he looks out, the audience themselves are all sort of monstery, uh sideshow, or just plain not-human types, and he looks like a normal, not-blue person.
1: But he doesn't look like Nightcrawler when we see human analogs of him, which is interesting. He doesn't look at
0: all like the one from X-Men Evolution, I'll tell you that much.
1: That version, there's an image inducer involved, but um, when you see, like, the Nightcrawler non-mutated versions of him, which has popped up in a comic a couple times, he's, for example, usually got dark hair, which he yeah. doesn't hear.
0: Well, regardless, it's pretty bizarre, and then Rocky and Bullwinkle, who here are Rambo and Van Winkle, pull him out of a hat in a circus stage. He bounces off Dumbo and grabs a sword from a sword swallower's mouth.
1: Yeah, there's some Boris and Natasha riffs.
0: Yeah, again, pop culture over and over and over and over
1: again. But it's just TV.
0: Oh, uh, actually, Colonel Sanders shows up. Although I guess he's mainly from TV commercials.
1: Yeah, I think he's. I mean, he's a mascot, but he's started out in commercials.
0: The one with Phoenix is a little bit different because she wakes up in fire and is actually confronted by the version of Kitty Pride from Earth eight eleven, Kate Pride.
1: And yes, she gets yelled at by that version of Kitty, but Rachel immediately recognizes that it's a trick, smashes the mirror, and finds herself in a Star Wars riff as Obi-Wan Kenobi facing off against Darth Vader. This is great because it's really obvious that Larson switched the characters as they were supposed to appear in the script. So there's dialogue that's trying to account for the fact that they're reversed relative to their roles in the drama and how it plays out. Like, what I think, based on the way they're drawn, actually, is that he was supposed to draw Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and instead he drew Luke and Darth
0: Vader. That could very well be, yeah, now that I think about it. Hard to say, and probably best not to dwell on, because it's kind of a very light, almost throwaway tale. Yeah, no, it's just, it's funny
1: watching the dialogue try to scramble after the art in that particular scene.
0: Now, after this fight, she's confronted by Tweedy, like Tweety D-I-E, with the Tweedy bird and a, a tweed suit.
1: The one with the really huge head.
0: I, I'm not even going to try for the Tweedy voice, but yeah, you can imagine I
1: can't it with it. that.
2: Nothing that lives is not touched by a part of me. Come to Tweety, I will help you to shed your mortal shell. Which is really nightmarish.
1: Yeah, this whole story is profoundly nightmarish.
0: It is, yeah, but thankfully, then the rest of Excalibur, well, most of the rest of Excalibur, comes through with a reprogrammed giant Sylvester the cat who eats Tweety Bird and explodes, and then Rachel's okay. Well... Yes, because it's that kind of story. Now, the next part is actually my favorite because we see- Oh,
1: likewise, by a wide margin.
0: Yeah, we see uh, Lockheed as Sherlock Holmes and Widget as John Watson, like complete with the mustache. I would read that comic. I would, and I'm really sad we only get a couple panels of it. But yeah, they go off to save their friends, followed by Max and 99, who are called Agent 68 and 99.9, from Get Smart to save the uh, giant purple dragon that was in the train in the Crosstime caper from Snidely Whiplash. Okay. I mean, okay, this is the part that I would have put together myself right here.
1: Yeah, this is really delightful. This is the part that I want to see running along the bottom margins of Excalibur comics from now on. Basically like a little comic strips at the bottoms of the pages in Cricket Magazine.
0: Oh, I was thinking like in Mad Magazine, and Sergio Aragonis could just draw them. Yes. That would be amazing. Okay, Sergio Aragonis, if you listen to our show for some reason, and you have some sway with Marvel, let's make this happen. He's very fast. He
1: can draw anything.
0: Well, there you go. Perfect. So they all go to rescue Captain Britain, who's been stuck for much longer... And go into the Oz pastiche that he's been in, break into the Emerald City, and see a giant floating head of, you guessed it, Arcade.
1: Well, you didn't guess it. It was pretty much dangled in front of you the entire story.
0: Pretty much, yeah. Now, Arcade has his Loonies attack and try to kill Excalibur, but it turns out Kitty has been hard at work reprogramming stuff and has her own Merry Maladies, who are some other Looney Tunes characters also as superheroes, but more like Marvel-style superheroes. So we have, like, Elmer Fudd shooting rays with Kirby Crackle all over them, and Wiley e. Coyote with a copy of Mjolnir that says Acme on it. Like, this part, I think, is a lot more clever than a lot of the other references.
1: And the story ends with Excalibur flying away in a hot air balloon to head back to the lighthouse.
0: So, uh, continuity consequences? Pretty much zero. Story development? Pretty much zero. Is it fun? You know, it's kind of fun.
1: Yeah, it feels like eight chapters worth of mashup t-shirt. Like, the references take a front seat to the story, given that, if you don't mind it, I don't feel like I wasted that hour.
0: And it was kind of cool seeing some very early uh, Eric Larson art, you know, before the whole image thing happened.
1: kind of thing you like if you like that kind of thing. I recognize Eric Larson's merits, but I don't feel like he's a good fit for these characters or for this particular story.
0: That's reasonable. But what is awesome is the next story we're going to talk about. Now, this one, Mojo Mayhem, does actually have a fair bit of continuity going on, so I'm going to turn this over to myself as Mojo and say,
2: Previously in the Mojoverse!
1: You're not doing that voice through this whole episode, are you?
0: Oh god, my throat not, would like fall out. You're not actually
1: like recapping this as Mojo.
0: No, no, if I could do that, then I would have an amazing career as a voice actor or just a professional yeller.
1: So, in the long shot miniseries, which we discussed in episode 49... A guy named Longshot escaped the Mojoverse to Earth with no memories.
0: The Mojoverse being this alternate dimension where everything is based on essentially ratings. It was reality TV with the much higher body count before reality TV was a thing.
1: There is an excellent episode of the X-Men animated series about the Mojoverse. It's in fact my favorite incarnation of the Mojoverse, which I highly recommend giving a watch if you haven't seen it. You don't need it for continuity, it's just fun.
0: Now, Longshot comes to Earth and meets a stunt woman named Ricochet Rita along with a few other folks. They manage to defeat Mojo, who's doing terrible things on Earth and then follow him back into the Mojoverse to free it. Now, this doesn't work as we find out in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 10.
1: Now, in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 10, which we covered, I think, in episode 63, Wild Ways, Mojo teleported Longshot and a bunch of Techno Goop into the danger room. Again, Longshot was bereft of his memories. He hadn't met up with the X-Men before. He was a new guy to them. This is how he ended up with the X-Men in the first place.
0: And thus it was implied that this rebellion he went off to in the Mojoverse uh, didn't go so well.
1: Now, as a result of said Techno Goop, the X-Men were all de-aged into kid versions of themselves.
0: And so they went off to uh, fight Mojo once they figured out what was going on, knocking out the new mutants so they couldn't chase them. The new mutants, of course, went to rescue these new X-babies and managed to defeat them. And Mojo helped by the fact that the X-babies started aging and their memories started coming back during the fight.
1: Later on in the Uncanny X-Men annual number 12 backup story.
0: Which we covered in episode 96.
1: We see Mojo dejected that the X-Men, who are some of his favorite guest stars are dead following the fall of the mutants, and he decides that he is going to make his own.
0: And so there are all these tryouts, and this part's actually pretty hilarious. So we see, like, an all-female team of X-Men, a team of X-Men who are all robots, a version wearing super fetishy BDSM costumes, a version who are all animals, and last of all, we have the X-Babies show up to the casting call.
1: You can guess the X-Men to which each is analogous based on the names. So we have Shower. Who is Storm. Wolvie. Guess. Colossus.
0: Colossusus, actually. Oh,
1: sorry. Colossus. Sugar.
0: I love that Rogue is called Sugar.
1: Psychild.
0: And then Lil Dazzler, Lil Longshot, and Lil Havoc that they didn't really try very hard for the names yeah, of. Yeah,
1: ran out of ideas there.
0: So Mojo is horrified by this team, specifically by Lil Longshot, who he hates because Longshot keeps, you know, foiling him or attempting to foil him. He turns Lil Longshot into a photograph that Sugar and Lil Dazzler promptly fight over, but the ex-babies do start beating him up. And then Major Domo, his assistant, says, you can't kill these kids. They're getting amazing, amazing ratings.
1: And that's the last we saw of the X-Babies. That, in turn, brings us to Excalibur Mojo Mayhem.
0: So Mojo Mayhem has always been one of my favorite Excalibur stories from when I was a kid. It was a standalone issue. It featured the X-Babies, who I loved, and it was gloriously ridiculous while also being really high drama.
1: And it's what I kind of think of as peak Art Adams.
0: I think it is. Yeah, I mean, Art Adams has pretty much drawn the X-Babies or the original DH team of X-Men who weren't technically the X-Babies every time, right?
1: Yeah, he is the go-to guy for Mojo verse Annuals. He's also just recently finished a story, I think, that the last X-Book we saw him work on was the X-Factor arc set in the UK with Alchemy.
0: Oh yeah, and all those trolls. That was so rad. God, Art Adams does such wonderful art. I wish he would just do everything, or at least a lot of things.
1: I think this is the story that most people think of when they think of the X-Babies, just because it's one of the most memorable. It's delightful. It's a Shadowcat story. And yeah, man, Adams is just in peak form here.
0: Well, as is Claremont. I mean, I love the opening narration right here.
2: As usual, Wolvie started it.
0: And we get some Wolverine dialogue. Sorry, Wolvie dialogue.
2: This poots! I wasn't born to run! Let's fight!
1: What we discover here is that the X-babies, now with Longshot no longer a photograph, are running around, and they are running around under the supervision of Ricochet Rita.
0: Yeah, and i was so happy to see Ricochet Rita again. We saw her briefly in the storyline where the ex-babies were first created, but seeing her as an actual character, like, I actually wish she was in Mojo Mayhem a lot more.
1: Yeah, and the glimpses we see of her, she is very much still Ricochet Rita.
0: Oh, yes. Which
1: I love. Like, I, I like the callbacks to her original characterization. This is a woman who is an amazing stuntwoman and daredevil, who's visually based very closely on Annie Nesenti.
0: Which is always interesting when Annie Nascente shows up in the same issues that Ricochet Rita is in, which I believe she actually does in Mojo Mayhem. Oh,
1: yeah, she's in this one. Um, yes. Her and Claremont and a couple other creators.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're running away from uh, Mojo's Trademark Police, who are these assorted Art Adams-esque monsters with these little TM brands. They actually remind me a lot of the censors from the game Psychonauts, who have the no brands and try to, like, tamp down any stray thoughts. Ooh. They're pretty great. Listeners, if you haven't played the video game Psychonauts by Double Fine, I can't recommend it highly enough. You're a kid to a psychic summer camp, and you go into, like, people's subconsciouses, and those are the levels, and it's great.
1: And basically, the Milkman Conspiracy is what it's like for us all the time.
0: That level is amazing. So is Black Velvetopia. But we digress.
1: We named our rock band band after the Milkman Conspiracy.
0: We totally did, yeah. that's great. And all the kids are doing that thing Claremont does where, like, a lot of people are talking at once, so there are all these little speech bubbles that aren't really connected to anybody that are almost overwhelming the panel, you know, with the kids yelling stuff like, No fair! This is your fault! Rita, I gotta go! Okay, so children in real life, I'm in favor of them, but they kind of confuse me. I often don't know how to interact with them, but I love the X-babies. I don't know why I do.
1: You love them because they're distilled down versions of the adult X-Men with bits of their personalities turned up to 11. They're adorable. They're cartoonish. They're kind of one-note But they exist within a narrative structure and function where they are just the perfect characters for those roles. You also love them because you, unlike Shadowcat and Ricochet Rita, are not responsible for
0: them. That's a really good point. I think that's what confuses me about kids. I'm worried I'll do something wrong and they'll just, like, explode or something.
1: Kids are really resilient, Miles.
0: I don't know, man. I see kids explode all the time. Just, you know, they're sitting around doing whatever kids do, like playing the Pokemans, and then just, boom, detonated, gone.
1: Sweetheart, those aren't kids. What are they? I don't know. Didn't we talk about this like recently in an episode, detonating children? Oh, we did. (laughs) We talked about that last episode because I was talking about the Daredevil story where there are the child robots that blow up and he's throwing them down elevator shafts.
0: Eh, You know, maybe that story just had a real impression on me. But yeah, speaking of the characters just sort of being, you know, distilled and dialed up versions of themselves, I really enjoy that Dazzler and Rogue are just fighting over Longshot the entire time because they did that briefly when they were adults before Rogue just sort of stopped caring very much. And here it's like what they do.
1: See, that's the one thing I don't like about them. I like that they do it. I don't like that's all they do.
0: I guess that's reasonable. I mean, I think part of it is that we have a pretty large cast in this comic. And so having some characters be just, you know, pulled into one or two major personality traits makes it a little easier to keep track.
1: Well, and with the kid versions of characters, you often see their personalities dialed down to one central key trait. But I would like different ones. I'd especially like a different one for Rogue.
0: Yeah, because there is just so much to Rogue. I mean, she's one of my very favorite characters. Well, and with
1: Dazzler, you could make her more about performance. And again, you know, it serves a story purpose here. But if I have one quibble with this entire lovely, delightful story, that's the one thing.
0: That's reasonable, yeah. I mean, I find it entertaining, but I can totally see where you're coming from. But yeah, they run away from these soldiers after Dazzler tries to trip Rogue and have her get eaten by the soldiers. And then Longshot saves her, and then they're better friends than ever, and Rogue gets all mad. But they find this thing called the House of Ideas, which may ring a bell. That's what Marvel Editorial basically called, you know, themselves.
1: That's what Marvel called itself for a long time. Marvel was the House of Ideas. That was like its tagline.
0: And it's this big building with all these additions hammered on for various like Marvel crossovers. So, for instance, Atlantis Attacks is this giant sort of fish building crammed onto the top.
1: Yeah, it's an architectural mashup. We'll throw the specific panel up in the, as mentioned, I think I forgot to make a list of these when I was working on the outline.
0: But the one that I totally remember is this sort of dilapidated, condemned little house shoved onto the side that just says new universe. It's sort of falling apart and falling over. Oh, sick burn. Yeah, the new universe was a second line that Marvel created back around this time, a little bit before that was supposed to be like the Marvel universe, but more realistic. And it did not sell so much. Yeah,
1: spoiler. There's a reason you don't remember it.
0: They actually brought it back not too long ago. Uh, I think Warren Ellis did some stuff with it.
1: Still. The first time around, it went over about as well as its representation here would imply.
0: And so, for instance, uh, Havoc is waiting for Rita's orders, and Rita doesn't even know what to make of this.
1: Just because I'm older doesn't- I'm only a movie stunt woman. for gosh sakes. A loner, responsible only for myself. Ugh, if you weren't kids, I would say something really rude.
0: And of course, Wolvie is just saying, say it, say it. Because, Man, Lil' Wolvie is the best child. You know, Wolverine's far from my favorite X-Man. I like him, but he's never been my favorite. But Wolvie is easily my favorite of the X-Babies, because he's just pure childlike id, and he's got knives in his hands. Well,
1: and the X-Babies, very much in the spirit of cartoonized versions of things, are kind of an ongoing riff on themselves. When they go into the House of Ideas, their costumes automatically get updated to their current versions, leaving, for example, Lil' Rogue, which I suppose should be Sugar in this context, bereft of her jacket.
0: I had really neat stuff in the pockets.
1: The whole house we find is built on a tiny structure inside, the house of Jack and Stan.
0: Complete with Kirby Crackle coming out of a tuning fork like a Black Bolt style sticking out of the front. And I love this. It's a nice little homage to, you know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, without whom the Marvel Universe would not exist. Now, say what you will about who was more or less responsible, I certainly fall on the Jack Kirby side of that opinion equation. Firmly. But it is still really cool to have such an homage, you know?
1: Immediately the baddies burst in with guns, try to shoot up the characters and leave you know, long shot to
0: state. Poor little house, all shot full of holes. Again, this is
1: fun and it's kid friendly, but it's kind of barbed at points.
0: Yeah, that could definitely be like a sort of poke in the ribs of Marvel as far as, you know, ideas or how the company's going at this point.
1: Oh, all over. And I think there's a very, very thin line to walk with this kind of satire to have it be recognizably poking fun of the institution that's creating it without getting cruel. And I think this does a really good job. One of the things that contributes to that, again, is that the writer is written into the story. But yeah, this is generally treated as and handled as being in good fun.
0: Now, the house collapses during this battle, and Mojo, who of course is watching, because he's always watching anything that might get ratings in the Mojoverse, he is furious, and Major Domo, his sort of very dry assistant, tries to calm him down.
1: The audience will eat it up, Mojo, all yum yum yum, just the way you love them to. Large-scale gratuitous destruction and the seeming obliteration of their favorite characters always makes for top ratings.
2: But only if they come back from the dead!
1: Meanwhile, Minor Domo, who is one of those characters who... I absolutely adore and is never, ever, ever developed. She's very much sort of the Harvey and or Janet of the Mojoverse.
0: Yeah, she's kind of like uh, this bellhop looking teenage girl who's always so enthusiastic about everything, so enthusiastic that she'll just keel over dead occasionally and then have to be, you know, rebooted slash brought back to life by Major Domo. But
1: I really like her.
0: I love her. She's fun. She's always just like flailing around, talking way too fast. Until but yeah, smoke comes she, out is, of her head. she
1: is extremely concerned. And with her help, the two Domos team up to summon the agent.
0: Now, the agent is this terrifying, hulking black figure who looks kind of like a Fallout character or maybe somebody from uh, David Lynch's Dune. But yes, he is the person who is going to bring back the ex-babies. That's his job. That's what he does.
1: He gets a hell of a commission for it, too, which Mojo is initially reluctant to pay, but the agent eventually talks him into. After that portentous introduction, we cut to Kitty Pride in her sleeping berth on the Highland Flyer.
0: Which, isn't that the train that went into the Nazi universe in... Mm the Nazi Excalibur story? Maybe. I don't know. I think it is. Maybe not. But regardless, she's uh, lying in a sleeper car. I've never been in a sleeper car. That seems like it would be super soothing to have, like, you know, the train motion and the sound in the background.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have no problem sleeping in train seats and the train trips that I've always been on have been just a little bit too short to justify that. But yeah, man, I would love, love, love to go on like a big, long cross-country train trip. We should
0: totally do that sometime.
1: Amtrak has writer's residencies. Which look amazing, and yeah, this is on my top 10 bucket list things.
0: That would be amazing. My main context for train trips is actually from uh, Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door, a highly underrated GameCube game. The GameCube being a highly underrated system. And there's this one chapter that's all just this big mystery set on a train, and you get to know everybody on the train and all their dark secrets and stuff. It's really great. But uh, Kitty is on this train because she is just getting back from a cat's laughing show. So you remember Cats Laughing? They're actually a real band, or at least were. I, no, I think they are still together,
2: aren't they?
1: They are. They very recently played a reunion show, and Emma Bold, who's the lead singer, wore one of our t-shirts, and I got super excited about it. That's
2: so amazing. I so that good. Was a,
1: it was somewhere in the Midwest. I'm completely blanking on the convention that it was at.
0: But that's rad. But yeah, it was a band that was composed largely of science fiction and fantasy authors, and Chris Claremont was a giant fan and just kept writing them into well, his he was, comics. He was good
1: friends with a lot of them. I should say Cats Laughing is a band that, in addition to existing in real life, also exists in multiple fictional universes. So they're also, for instance, part of the Borderlands shared SFF universe,
0: which is so rad.
1: The main context in which we tend to see cats laughing in the Marvel universe is backing up Lila Cheney.
0: Now, in this case, they weren't, but Kitty went to see them, and she's reminiscing about the show and about how much she misses Ileana Rasputin.
1: And how they are the best band ever, and they're so cool, and Emma Bull is one of her favorite writers, and she is super excited, and she is the fan who they all know by name at this point.
0: Yeah, like there's a scene at one point of her just dancing on the stage with them.
1: And they've made her a special roadie t-shirt.
0: A sweatshirt, that's actually what she wears for almost this entire story. And very little else. True, and we'll get to that. But at the same time, there's a lot of bittersweetness to where Kitty Pride's head is. She's flashing back to the lighthouse and also remembering that, you know, the X-Men, her friends, they're gone. And she just met a Nazi version of herself who was a ghost. And hey, maybe her friend Ilyana could have used her magic to save that Nazi version, except Ilyana is also dead.
1: Yeah, the reason Kitty was at this concert is that she was just exhausted and burned out, kind of blew her top at the lighthouse and was like, you know, screw it. I just I need to get away for a few days. I'm gonna go see my favorite band. I have missed the rest of this tour because I was incorporeal. Just fucking deal with it, CB.
0: And I actually really love when she's grumping at all of her uh, teammates, the, the awesome, like, dialogue that Claremont writes for her.
1: Grazzle, Razak, Snag. She's thick.
0: Well-pronounced. That's not easy.
1: I had to practice a couple times.
0: <laughs> yeah, well... Whoever letters this is super impressive, especially here.
1: It's Orzakowski, and I think assisted in this case by uh, someone named Jade Mode, M-O-E-D-E.
0: Okay, well, so one of them probably did it, so good job to both of you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But
0: yeah, so she's being all grumpy, and uh, Captain Britain is not happy about the idea of her leaving, especially not for a few days, because, you know, Excalibur might be called on at any time.
1: But Kurt, who is, for this context, dressed in a Flaming Carrot t-shirt.
0: Awesome, I love Flaming Carrot.
1: Yes, great reference. Talks him into it, basically says, if we're going to make her take responsibility for being on a superhero team, we can let her take enough responsibility to take a goddamn weekend.
0: Exactly. Except he
1: probably doesn't say goddamn because it's Kurt.
0: And so back in the present, Kitty is nodding off when all of a sudden there are a bunch of ex-babies right in her face asking for her help. She freaks out. She phases through the entire train in nothing but
1: her sweatshirt and underwear, which is what she's been sleeping in, until she is outside phasing through couples in bed, people reading, and the engineer, we should note. We made the, you know, Kitty's Pretty Young, We Try Not to Sexualize her Jab about Eric Larson. Art Adams does a great job.
0: Yeah, it's actually really impressively done. Like, it's not really creepy or objectifying. It's just, this is what she was sleeping in, and it really gets across how unprepared for this whole caper she was. Well,
1: the main perspective we get on it, the main feeling it leaves me, at least, with is recognition of a very specific anxiety dream setup.
0: That's kind of true. It also does give us the great Wolvie line. I see London. I see France. I see kitties. Wolvie!
2: (laughs) It's pretty great.
1: It also gives Kitty an opportunity for, and I hope your drinks are filled right now, a new costume.
0: Yeah, so after she meets the X-Babies and sort of gets the gist of what's going on, that they're baby versions of the X-Men from the Mojoverse they were with Ricochet Rita and now she's gone.
1: They tell her, well, you know, okay, it's our fault that you're stuck out here in your underwear. We'll put together some clothes for you out of spare pieces of our costumes. So she ends up wearing Storm's tiny jacket, which is sort of a bolero jacket on her. Silek's cape is a skirt, Colossus's belt and boots... This is a great and very, very Kitty outfit, and this is another one that I'd I'd put on the cosplay all the Kitty Prides bucket list just because it's a fun outfit, and it's ridiculous.
0: You know what I want to see? I want to see somebody cosplaying that version of Kitty and then the version of Jubilee that we talked about last time, who's also in a bunch of, like, in her case, stolen X-Men gear.
1: Oh, yes, man. The mashup 1989 x teens.
0: It would be pretty awesome. And so, yeah, Kitty, of course, agrees to help them because... A, they're weird little kids in need of help who uh, are going up against one of her enemies, and B, the X-Men are dead, and this is the closest she's gotten to the X-Men ever since the last time she saw them ages ago, even if it's not really them.
1: And this is a chance to save them the way that she couldn't before, too.
0: Yeah, and so they head to the nearest constabulary, which is a great word, and I don't know if I'm saying it right, maybe you're supposed to emphasize a different syllable.
1: That's, yeah, constabulary.
0: Okay in this nearby tiny, tiny town, using the excuse that they just got back from a costume party, and that's why they look like that.
1: Clearly, and the kids just have really great costumes.
0: Yeah, now, little Psylocke, Psychild, I believe, she's feeling kind of weird this whole time, but before she can do what Kitty recommends, which is telepathically contacting Phoenix through Shadowcat, since all the phones were out, the kindly on-duty police officer at the police station asks Psylocke to just sign some routine paperwork real quick.
1: At which point she is sucked into the contract it turns out she has just inadvertently signed, and the police officer reveals himself to be none other than... The agent.
0: So is it me or is this entire story just like a big morality tale about how you should always read the end user license agreement before you click accept? Yes. Because otherwise, you know, they might like get your kidney or your soul might get pulled into the agent to go to Mojo and then the agent would get your powers.
1: The agent also, it turns out, absorbs the kids' talents as he collects them, which means he now has telepathy. The kids head out the fastest way possible, at which Kitty comments... That's the classic X-Men spirit, fellas. Never use a door when you can make one of your own.
0: And I just imagine like uh, old classic X-Factor showing up from one of their few issues just being like, you called?
1: Well, no, classic X-Factor specifically busting through a different wall to say, You called?
0: (laughs) Exactly. And so they steal a police car and flee because, of course, Wolvie stole the keys while they were just hanging out with the cop because he's a tiny bladed delinquent. I love him so much.
1: Right. He's delightful. Uh, Kitty can hardly see her glasses are still on the train. Storm is having trouble being stuck in a cramped car. And worse yet, they run out of gas, leaving them stranded on the side of the road until they are able to flag down a car full of suckers.
0: Specifically, Chris Claremont, Anna Senti, John Bolton and Mike Lake. That's one of the things I enjoy about Excalibur in general, and this story in particular, is they just don't really care very much about the fourth wall sometimes.
1: Yeah, and they basically non-violently hijack this car. They go, sorry, really important, we gotta take it. (laughs) Superior Force clear out the hapless comics creators and all of their stuff and take off, leaving them in the lurch. And, you know, everyone else just glaring down Chris Claremont.
0: Why are you all looking at
1: me? Gotta blame someone, love. Under the circumstances, considering the characters...
0: So, having successfully carjacked many of the most important creators in Marvel history, Kitty and the X-Babies head to a convenience store not too far away to pick up some supplies. At which
1: point, a beautiful red-headed waitress at this stop chases after Lil' Havoc, tells him that he's her very favorite X-Baby, and can she have his autograph? Now, Havoc has a number of weaknesses, but the primary one during this era is validation from Hot Redheads.
0: Who then inevitably betray him. And sure enough, it's the agent who gets Havoc's soul. But I love that little bit. Like, I never really made that connection before, except having gone through Meltdown and all the other similar stuff so recently. So yes, seeing that here, the same damn thing happens to Havoc that happens to him every single other story is pretty great.
1: Join a monastery at this point, Alex. <laughs> yeah,
0: seriously, it's just Maybe not you can working out. Maybe finish your
1: dissertation.
0: <laughs> just be a geologist. Stay away from basically all women. Let's just keep it safe.
1: Just everyone. <laughs> no, we are too mean to Havoc. I mean,
0: the narrative is kind of too mean the to Havoc. The narrative is
1: incredibly mean to Havoc.
0: Yes. So they escape after running out of gas again, and now minus two a little X-Men, and Kitty is sort of strategizing, trying to figure out just how to handle all this nonsense that she and these kids are stuck in the middle of.
1: Best hope is to play this as a wolfy caper. Move fast, think sneaky. Can't risk turning to anybody we don't know.
0: And she thinks about the fact that the agent has been, thus far, trying to tempt each of them with her heart's desires.
1: Ha, faked him there. I got mine. I'm back with the X-Men, and I'm not about to lose them again.
0: Now, Kitty doesn't have long to be determined. Her reverie is, in fact, interrupted.
1: By Lil' Longshot, who is staring dreamily at her. When she asks what he's looking at, he responds, You. Those eyes! Be still, my heart!
0: Because even Kid Longshot is super, super dreamy, which amuses the hell out of me.
1: Now, speaking of Kid Longshot's dreaminess, we've already seen Rogue and Dazzler fighting over them. And when they are on the bus, the agent is able to use this against both of them. He's disguised as sort of a random old man, the sort who offers you your heart's desire randomly on buses if you sign a contract.
0: I believe we uh, call that man Mr. Stranger Danger.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, pretty much. But he, he tells each of them that they'll get long shot if they sign. They both do and immediately pop away.
0: So, once again, it's a confrontation with the agent because this is the pattern here. The agent will be disguised as someone, get one or more of the kids to sign something, then reveal himself and attack the team.
1: He's able to capture a few of them without getting them to sign. At this point, the kids all try to get off the bus. Colossus stays back to hold the agent off, and he's captured as well. Wolverine gets lost in a similar manner a little later. I don't think he actually signs either. So, they end up at the same train station where Kitty's train was headed. They flee and get there. She goes and gets her stuff from Lost and Found Her Luggage, and they are immediately confronted by the station master, Amanda
0: Wall. If that name or the character design, minus skin color, sound familiar, it's because this basically is Amanda Waller, who in her original incarnation, when she was running the Suicide Squad and stuff back in the DC universe, was freaking awesome.
1: Okay, Amanda Waller is amazing and super kick-ass, and I love her to the ends of the earth.
0: She's the only person I've ever seen bully Batman into doing something.
1: And that's why I love her.
0: Also, the DC Animated Universe version of Amanda Waller is pretty much perfect.
1: Yeah, no, Amanda Waller is amazing and wonderful. This character, however, needs Kitty to sign for her luggage, which is a perfectly sensible thing to ask under the circumstances, except Kitty's been warning the ex-kids not to sign for anything, and now she's about to blithely go ahead and do it. And they are concerned.
0: Specifically, Wolvie is just staring at Amanda Wall, concerned about this, saying, I really, really can't. I must. (laughs) And snicks her right in the butt, sending the agent flying sky high out of her mouth. Like Art Adams' ability to sell utter cartoon physics in the midst of his otherwise relatively realistic style makes me so freaking happy.
1: Yeah, man, this is a story it's really hard to imagine drawn by anyone else. And this story is also, I gotta say, there is no clearer antecedent to Scotty Young's Little Marvels.
0: You know, that's a really good point. Like, Scotty Young, I'm guessing, was a huge X-Babies fan. I mean, obviously the X-Babies were initially a Muppet Babies parody, but they kind of became their own thing pretty quickly.
1: It's very much the same kind of distillation, the same kind of character simplification, and... The same feel to the stories.
0: And so, once again, it's another confrontation, and we lose Wolvie here as the uh, agent is somehow able to absorb him. Now, the next we see any of our characters is actually in the middle of a royal wedding, because stories like this work really well, cutting from one scene to an entirely other scene.
1: So remember when Kitty went to the Cats Laughing concert, how before that there was a big blow-up with Excalibur? During that, Megan happened to mention that there was a royal wedding she was really looking forward to watching on TV. Not British royals, but someone who was a big deal. As it turns out, yeah, they are for some reason getting married in Britain. They're getting married at St. Paul's Cathedral for some reason. But the bride, at least, is someone we've seen before.
0: Yeah, this is Judith Rassendil, who is the heir to the fortune of Ruritania, both names that totally got pulled out of the Prisoner of Zenda trilogy from the late 1800s. And she's doing a royal wedding, you know, that kind of arranged thing that makes for a good alliance. But
1: she was an uncanny X-Men 204, and she's the lady who Nightcrawler rescued from Arcade, right?
0: She totally is, yeah. And apparently Chris Claremont was originally going to do a lot more with her and tie her into Nightcrawler's origin. That never happened, but we do get to see her wedding interrupted by Kitty Pride phasing through the floor with a sign that says, Excalibur, help.
1: Unfortunately, Kitty realizes that the member of Excalibur who's probably watching the wedding is Megan, who is very close to illiterate. So she ultimately has to disrupt the wedding by yelling at the camera, Once again, it turns out that a critical player was the agent all along, in this case, the priest. So it's a good thing that they intervened before, for example, the marriage license was signed.
0: I mean, you think your wedding's getting ruined when somebody faces through the floor and starts yelling. And then the priest rips off his face and you realize you didn't know what ruined meant.
1: Yeah, see, this is why we went with one of my professors as an officiant. Like, we had a pretty solid working knowledge that that he was not actually an agent of the Mojoverse.
0: As far as we know, that was in fact the case. I never saw him rip off his face even once. Anyway, yeah, so there's a fight, and it's going really badly. Like, the agent has a ton of mutant powers at this point, because he's absorbed most of the X-babies.
1: Yeah, the only ones left at this point, we still got Lil' Storm, right?
0: Yeah, and Lil' Longshot as well.
1: And that's it, those are the last two.
0: Yeah, now they are able to use their powers to get the contracts away from the agent. Longshot throws his blades to cut open the agent's pouch, and then Storm uses her winds to blow the contracts over to Kitty.
1: Who is somehow able to use her powers to phase the ink out of them freeing all of the other ex-babies
0: okay you could call this stupid you could call this inconsistent with kitty's powers i call that awesome
1: yeah no this is entirely consistent with the logic of this story and i maintain and i've said before i will say again and i strongly feel that there are contexts in which the rule of cool absolutely trumps and this is certainly one of them
0: And at this point, not only do the ex-babies have the advantage of no longer being contract bound and thus reappearing, but apparently Kitty's message was successful because Brigadier Alessand Stewart and the Weird Happenings organization Soldiers and Excalibur all show up at the same time to come assist.
1: And they handily subdue the agent. Judith and Nightcrawler have a brief and dramatic reunion. Alas, she is still about to get married, so that doesn't go anywhere. And Phoenix heads over to interrogate the agent and just blows him the hell up and burns him away. Everyone is shocked until they discover that she's actually just burning away the shell of the agent and trapped underneath was none other than Ricochet Rita.
0: Right. And they can't celebrate for too long, though, because Mojo's head, this giant simulacrum of Mojo's head, just appears over, like, the top half of Rita's body and starts yelling at them.
2: Sad so sad that while Sneaky Shadow voided your contracts, babies, how unethical can you get, I ask you? She can't do the same for the ricochet. You may all be free. She remains eternally mine.
1: The kids confer briefly and offer Mojo a compromise. They'll return on the condition that Mojo frees Rita.
2: He's, of course, suspicious. Dear, dear, long shot. wring your spineful neck. Crack your bones for toothpicks. What assurance have I? Save her that you'll do as you promise. To which Storm, or rather Shower, rebuts... We are heroes. Guarantee enough for anyone.
1: And Rita's contract burns. Rita subsequently wakes up and is extremely displeased with the arrangement that's been made on her behalf.
0: Right, all the ex-babies have gone back through with Mojo. They're gone, leaving only her.
1: Everyone I know and care about is on the other side of that portal, not to mention the stage of a lifetime, the chance to walk the ultimate glory road.
0: Because this is Ricochet Rita, and she likes glamour and fame of her own, like, you know, motor oil-covered sort even more than Dazzler.
1: Man, this is such a bittersweet end, especially if you know what's eventually going to come, that this is, you know, part of the inevitable transformation of Rita into
0: Spiral. Right, yeah, because she does go back through the portal to go help the ex-babies out, Just like Longshot, and she went back through the portal to the Mojoverse at the end of the Longshot miniseries. It didn't work that time. It's not going to work out this time.
1: What we discover here is that while they may be children, the X-babies are pretty canny. And once he's got them back, Mojo is faced with the realization that while they have agreed to return to the Mojoverse, They have not agreed to perform, which gives them a good deal of leverage for negotiation.
0: Yeah, and so while Minor Domo is gazing adoringly at Longshot, and Rogue and Dazzler, of course, are glaring at her, the other kids are just talking and talking. It's that same kind of lettering thing where there are tons of tiny, non-directed speech bubbles just to show how overwhelming the situation is.
2: Script approval. Great houses. Lots and lots of toys. Merchandising share. Casting consultation.
0: And yeah, Mojo is just sort of, you know, has his head in his hands and is wondering what he's gotten himself into.
2: We've got a few
1: specific requests as from Lil' Wolvie. I want to poke
2: him just once where it hurts.
1: That's where we wrap up the issue with the ex-babies negotiating Mojo with his head in his hands and Minor Domo, I assume, just about to spark out again as she does fairly regularly.
0: Yeah. So this is such a silly story But it's also one of the most fun Excalibur stories I've read. Like, we have some great Shadowcat work. It's fully within continuity in terms of what she's angsting about, because that's really how you should best track X-Men continuity. Who's angsting about what when?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's how you get plot recaps.
0: And it's just really enjoyable. I mean, if you're looking, again, if you're looking for super serious, super angsty stuff with, you know, big world-shaking consequences... Then
1: why the hell are you even reading Excalibur in the first place?
0: Yes, but if, like us, you really enjoy it when the X-Men get to be silly and high drama at the same time...
1: Then why the hell weren't you already reading Excalibur?
0: Yeah, it's really enjoyable, one of my very favorite stories, and we're going to see a lot more of these kind of prestige format Excalibur pseudo annuals. But I gotta say, I think Mojo Mayhem, aside from maybe the very first one, The Sword is Drawn, may be my favorite.
1: It's definitely the most memorable. Meanwhile, however, you've got questions.
0: All right, Magic Robot Dinosaur asks on Tumblr In all the years I've read X Men comics, very few of them involve Alex Summers in any significant capacity. Are there any Havoc comics you guys would recommend besides Meltdown?
1: Okay, the two runs where you will most often see Havoc front and center are the second incarnation of X Factor that's starting with Volume 1, Number 71, and the series Mutant X, which was Havoc's universe-hopping solo series. That was
2: so weird.
1: It has its moments. It's got some really good stuff. It's... Yeah, it's an interesting series. I'm looking forward to eventually discussing it. We're still a fairly far way out. But yeah, if you're a Havoc fan, it's definitely worth a read.
0: Isn't that also the one with Space Pirate Cyclops? That
1: is the one with Space Pirate Cyclops, with the only well-adjusted Scott Summers in the the multiverse. (laughs) So Havoc also plays a very significant role in a series of Vulcan-centric crossovers. Vulcan. Yeah, I know, but he is more the context than the lead character of these, and those are the Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire, Emperor Vulcan, and War of Kings, in which Havoc actually ends up leading the Starjammers.
0: I really do like those stories with Havoc. Yeah, you get to see a cool combination of characters. You get some focus on Rachel, uh, at the time, Rachel Grey, which I really enjoy.
1: Yeah, and you get to see Havoc and Polaris pulled out of their usual contexts and written much better than they often tend to be. Now, for a very, very different take on Havoc and a very different version of the character, you might also enjoy the Age of Apocalypse miniseries Factor X, which is basically about the Age of Apocalypse versions of Havoc and Cyclops, who are, again, significantly different from, but have some key characteristics in common with their 616 counterparts. Hey,
0: that's the second episode in a row where we've had a question uh, come up to which one of the answers was Factor X Havoc.
1: Man, I really like Factor X. It's a good series. It Um, is. You also mentioned, I think, Uncanny Avengers.
0: Uh, Yeah, Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers, the first volume, it's definitely not one of my favorite series, and the handling of Havoc of it uh, is controversial to say the least, but honestly, it's one of the most central roles he's ever had since Mutant X, so if you're a Havoc fan and want to read all the important stuff, I think that counts as important uh, whether or not you end up liking it.
1: Okay, Thomas asks via email, You have now mentioned Iceman in his Ice Wizard incarnation and the Morlock Healer as a wizard. And who could forget Dick Warlock? No one. What other X characters would you like to see transcend mere mortality to ascend to wizard status?
0: Okay, so aside from Iceman, the Ice Wizard, and the Morlock Healer being a sewer wizard, uh, we do also, of course, have a universe where Magic, Ilyana Rasputin, is Sorceress Supreme, and there's always Sorceress Storm from the Magic Mini series, and the one time that the New Mutants went back in time to ancient Egypt, and her ancestor who looked just like her was also a sorceress.
1: There are a lot of X wizards, and you know what? I feel good about that.
0: I feel good about that too. Now, you could take this question in a silly or a serious direction, and honestly, the first character that jumped out at me, I would love to see Lucas Bishop with mystical powers.
1: Oh, shit, he already has super excellent wizard hair.
0: He does, like, especially the version of him from uh, Sam Humphrey's Uncanny X-Force run. He looked super awesome. Oh,
1: man, yes, yes.
0: But the idea of this character, who's gone back in time to attempt to manipulate the time stream and generally ends up screwing it up more than he's actually successful, who's tried to get away from the time travel stuff to become like a mutant cop and then it doesn't really work, he gets pulled back into it. The idea of him seeking out unwise levels of power so he could actually do what he wanted is really compelling.
1: Oh, you know what era I would have loved to have seen that happen in? What's that? The Cable and Hope series when he's chasing after them just relentlessly in the time stream. Seeing him turn not only to technological but to arcane means... Because his mantra at that point is basically any means necessary. And seeing him take that in more directions and further would have been very, very cool. That would have been a context where I think that would have made a lot of sense. And he's got some mystical roots and ties as a character.
0: I know he's um, Gateway's descendant, technically. And Gateway's powers seem to be pseudo-mystical in at least some ways as far as his connection to Dreamtime.
1: Yeah, and again, you know, some of the storylines that have played out around Bishop have tied back to that. So having Bishop really fully try to, you know, exploit those options when he was trying to hunt down hope would have been absolutely fascinating and I think very much in tune with the character.
0: Totally. And I mean, my other real easy answer is Destiny, just because she's almost already a wizard and that would just make her be able to do more stuff and thus appear in more stories. And I always like seeing more Irene Adler.
1: Yeah, likewise Sage, I think.
0: Oh man, Sage. Because Sage can already do everything else. Let's give her magic while we're at it.
1: Well, no, but she's a character whose abilities include encyclopedic knowledge and perfect recall. And I feel like, especially if you're talking about like a Vancian wizard, she would be incredibly well suited to that.
0: Oh, she would know all about her spells per day.
1: Now, the other character who we've seen dabble a little bit in spellcasting already in this context and who I think would be a very fun character to take in an arcane direction is Cypher.
0: You know, I can see that totally.
1: People talk about the how can you use Cypher's mutant power to make him more effective in context of the fact that he's a character in a superhero book. And actually, Magic seems like a really obvious answer to that to me.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm in favor of it. And I mean, you know, not a lot's happened with Cypher in the last few years. So, hey, new direction. Marvel, go for it.
1: Now, we are an entirely listener-supported project, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a number of fictional characters and entities. In this case, I believe I am turning the mic over somewhat reluctantly to Mojo.
2: Major Domo, what, what, what is happening? I wanted shiny new marketable mutants and you give me babies? I hate babies. Rob Pawson, Mark, make yourselves useful and wipe these filthy rugrats out. Wait, no, 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 no. Nobody dies without my permission. You two are traitors. Trying to cancel these darling babies? I love babies. Are you trying to ruin everything? Who wrote this script? Rewrite, rewrite.
0: And we'll go from there to the angry Claremontian narrator.
1: (coughs) You thought it would be so simple, John W. Bruce. Round up the bad guys, send them back where they came from, then wash your hands of the whole hero business. But you didn't count on Dan Pinsk among their number. And that fact alone makes them deadly beyond imagination.
0: And with that...
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Young, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast.
0: New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ExplainTheXMen.com. Check
1: out ExplainTheXMen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And make sure to come see us September 10th and 11th at Rose City Comic Con.
0: Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free and at places like Rose City Comic-Con, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com.
1: Next week, the X-Men's numbers continue to dwindle.
0: As Polaris gets ripped, Wolverine has a Conan moment, and the Savage Land somehow manages to get even Weirder.